Hey everyone, welcome to Rajit Show, the show where I interview people who are reshaping what it means to live well in the 21st century. We talk the creator economy, learning and building in public, and how we can hack our way out of our most pressing issues. Enjoy. Hey, how you doing? Hey, Rajit, how's it going? Not bad, not bad. Thanks for joining me. It's nice and snowy over here. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> it's cold in Jersey. It's nothing. It's nothing pleasant weather-wise over here either. Yeah, it's gonna be nice to take the puppy out and see how she plays in twelve inches of snow, which is literally <laughs> taller than her. Yeah, my dog is uh, sleeping, but uh, she's a ball of energy too. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I I really appreciate you doing this. One of the reasons I was really excited about doing this with you is that. In a lot of ways, you've involved yourself in tech pretty early on in school. And so that's definitely something I try to emulate, but it's definitely also something that's really interesting to me in terms of figuring out what what inspires you, like why, what is the reason for why you try to pursue all the things you do? Because I think that's uh, really interesting. So I, I'm just interested. So what, you know, basically there's this one week that I think every college student can remember in March where our lives just went... <laughs> changed. I don't want to swear on my own podcast, but they changed. And so talk about what's going through your head March of March, the week of the 14th or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, so I was at school before and when everything came out and like shit hit the fan and everybody was freaking out that week in March, I remember coming home and just thinking like, all right, this is going to suck. Hopefully it'll be temporary because at that point, I think every, everyone still thought this was something we might be able to contain when we weren't in full-out pandemic mode. But I guess that didn't turn out to be the case. <laughs> and when I got home, school was an adjustment. School sucked online. And so that kind of led me to taking the decision to take a gap year the following year, this year. So currently, I'm not in school anymore. I would be a junior. But yeah, after my sophomore year, I took the year off. So I'm a sophomore now so i guess next year i'll be a junior too so you and i i guess would end up graduating around the same time that's so interesting because you're older than me i don't know that's yeah, that that would be interesting wouldn't it huh wow count your stars anyhow yeah so yeah i think your experience was, it was similar for a lot of people i know i definitely didn't like online class and i would honestly feel bad the teacher goes through a lecture you can mute yourself turn your video off you're just on youtube doing whatever the heck you want to do so it doesn't really matter. But I think it's just so much harder to actually, right? Part of being in school is just being around your friends and learning with your friends. And that wasn't there. Yeah. Um, I think I also felt like it was uh, harder to engage in the class and also harder to pay attention. It's harder to absorb things, even if you wanted to absorb them because you were just on a Zoom lecture for six hours a day or something. So it was, mm -hmm. it was tougher to constantly engage in the same setting, I think, which is also something that gets discounted. The monotony of Zoom meetings is not lost on anyone now, but back then I think that was still something people were figuring out in that you can only do so much Zoom in a day and critically engage with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely one of the things, and we'll talk about it later, but you definitely talk about, right, a lot of your job is hopping on calls all day, and that's really draining in a lot of different ways. But yeah, my my bed is, right, two feet that way. This is the desk I do all my work at. And yeah. so it just, it feels very strange to just hop into a classroom setting when you're just in your room. Yeah, it definitely does. Right, yeah. 
So I, I remember coming back and seeing all of a sudden all these resources about taking a gap year. Mm. I'm wondering how much influence, I, I think the idea of a gap year had a certain stigma around it before this year in that I saw a lot of resources. So I saw one from my friend, Nathan Lung, or I like to call him my friend. We've just talked on the phone a couple of <laughs> times, my friend. And so it, it seems like there's a stigma around a gap year in that, first of all, right, only rich kids do it. Mm-hmm. You do it to quote unquote, discover yourself, whatever that means. Yeah. And you do it to take a break off of school. And so your experience has been way different than that. Right. Yeah, I think my decision to take a gap year was, I would say, a safer bet than actually going to school. So for me, it came down to how can I maximize my social enjoyment at school in my time there while also engaging or enjoying my academics? And I found that in an online school, I was enjoying neither my academics nor like social aspect. And so I was missing out on both halves of the college experience, quote unquote. And so that was like my first indicator that it was an unsatisfying experience. And then beyond that, I was the only other consideration for me was like, what is the implication of graduating a year later on that kind of first, like the social and academic enjoyment that I mentioned and two, like employment for what is the real impact on employment opportunities? Because of that stigma you mentioned, I was also curious is that a real thing? Are people worried about it? And it turns out people aren't worried about it. In fact, it actually, in a lot of cases, it strengthens your candidature for for a lot of things. Because I think most people, when they're in school, don't have the opportunity to really go deep within one area. And so that leads to people becoming jacks of all trades in, in sorts of all different kinds of directions, which is not really what, you know, people in breakout roles or breakout opportunities are looking for. They're looking for deep expertise in one area. And so being on a gap, I found at least was uh, a really unique opportunity to go incredibly deep in one area rather than splitting that attention into four separate ways that you do every summer with piecemeal internships at different places every three months. And so when you think about a gap year, like working for one year at a place, that's something most people won't do until they're you know, out of college. And by getting that kind of in during your college experience, you one have, I think, a filtering mechanism for understanding, is this something that you want to do or continue to go in the direction of? Or two, if I want to pivot, the direction that professionally, academically, whatever I'm heading, I now have the opportunity to go back to a college campus and leverage the resources of a college campus to go make that choice. Because once you leave college, you're on your own. But once you're in that campus environment, you have an entire support structure there to help you. So I think most people don't realize that as a student, you have an inherent advantage of discovery, resources, and like support. So that's something I would definitely take advantage of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really awesome that you mentioned the whole idea of support, right? So I was talking to Nathan. He left. He worked at Google for a year. He just left the University of Michigan, worked at Google for a year after his you know, freshman year. So he took a gap year, then worked at Jupiter, and then he decided to come back to school. And I asked him, I was like, why are you coming back to school? And he was like, school's fun, actually. Like, I can work for the rest of my life. And so one of the things that taught me is I think the same thing that you're getting at there is that it's actually advantageous to be in a role where you, you know, if if you look, think about someone entering college and someone leaving college, it's like, it's four years of hyper growth, right? I think 19 to 23 looks very different than 24 to 28 or, you know, 28 to 32. 
And so the best or one of the best pieces of personal advice I ever saw, which I don't know if Eric Tornberg actually said this, but it was Eric Tornberg's Build Personal Moats. Yeah. Essay. I'm just wondering how you think about that, right? So you mentioned trying to stay at the same place for a long time. So you have that sort of like consistent sort of thing in your role. So you can actually see what do I like and stuff like that. But you've you've worked at a number of places. So I'm just wondering, it, it's obviously early and you're still figuring this stuff out. But what do you think about when you hear build personal modes? Yeah. And so for context, for anyone listening, my previous kind of work history is along the lines of uh, policy and politics. And then I transitioned into technology my freshman year of college. So I guess before that, I was doing like policy internships. I worked for my congresswoman. I did some research with a professor and I worked on the policy team of Cory Booker's campaign. And then before that, I helped write a federal law that was passed in 2019. But in college, I came in and realized that I was getting pigeonholed in the sense that I couldn't try out all the things that I wanted to. And I wasn't certain that policy or politics was the route for me. So I wanted to be certain or more certain of that choice. And so I decided that any way that I could test that hypothesis was better than not being able to test it at all. And I felt that by doing only policy internships, kind of people were putting me in this box and making it harder for me to leave that kind of resume barrier. And, and so I came like freshman or my freshman year of college at Princeton, and I joined a friend startup actually who was building my fitness pal for college students. And one thing led to another. I became more involved in technology. I did an internship my last summer with another startup. And then now I'm on a gap year working at Navis, which is a weed distribution company based in California. A legal weed distribution company, right? They're actually fully legal, but <laughs> but yeah. And I think when I think about personal notes, I think about what are the intersection of things that I'm interested in that most people are not interested in or as proficient at me as. And so one of those things I think about is where does your interest intersect with a growth opportunity? Because that's an area where you can distinctly advance either yourself or whatever you hope to achieve. And finding those areas of overlap between, okay, what does the world need and what do I know or do I enjoy knowing? And so for me, it was like, I study China policy and I don't study tech, but I work obviously in like tech. But for me, it was, yeah, the intersection of China policy and uh, technology. So technology I saw as a way to directly impact the world around you. Whereas when I worked in policy, I realized that the top-down approach of creating legislation is really tough, has a really long life cycle, and is subject to politics. And politics is the unfun part of policy to me. Um, Policy is from an objective or empirical sense, what is the best way to solve this problem? And politics is how does reality affect the best way to solve those problems? And that kind of became frustrating for me in politics because it was tough to see stuff that you worked on for months and months go down the toilet because someone across the aisle doesn't like it or something like that. And startups looked out as an example to me of a way that you could directly influence the world around you without actually needing someone else's permission or consent to do it. And so that to me was you know, really appealing. And that was why I made a transition beginning in college, start experimenting with what I could do. And so now, yeah, I'm working as a product management intern at Navis. They're a company out of YC's winter 19 batch. I think they've currently raised their series A and Yeah, it's been really cool. They're a B2B software and distribution company. So what that means is they help brands across the state of California 
do deliver and sell their products to dispensaries. So dispensaries are the actual retail locations where people buy their products um, and the brands are obviously the manufacturers. So they work on the B2B side, but it's been really interesting. And, and the thing that you found when you shifted from policy to technology was that the, the constant thread there was just problem solving, right? How do we solve this problem? Yeah. And so how do you... For, for me, just to jump in there, I think for me it was always... Uh, policy was really attractive because it was solving problems on this almost completely different scale. It was how can I help not result? How can I help rectify issues of national inequality and wealth disparities across the country? And so that's a fascinating problem and something that not everyone gets to work on. And so that to me was like really interesting at the intersection of technology, not technology, sorry, at the intersection of impact and policy. And so startups were similarly a way for me to problem solve and make an impact, but with a much quicker feedback loop. And I think it is on a smaller scale when you think about the kind of impact you're having. But I think working in something like cannabis, for example, is a really interesting way to think about how small strokes in a big pool can gradually become something really huge. So uh, mm. I think cannabis was something that was completely frowned upon in this country even 10 years ago. You look at the way public sentiment has shifted, like five states voted yes on the referendums in this election cycle to legalize or decriminalize marijuana, mm -hmm. which you know is pretty indicative of national sentiment, which is like 68% of people or 63% of people approve of legalizing cannabis and unscheduling it as a federal one drug or schedule one drug. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that's been really interesting, I think. It's a really interesting blend of even at your current role, policy and, and technology in that obviously NABIS wouldn't exist if there weren't dispensaries, which wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been legislation passed. Yeah. Um, even now, I think the policy side of the industry is part of what really attracts me to it. I think the unique opportunity to work in an area where policy, technology, and impact all intersect. Like I'll give you an example for it. Mabis is working on an effort to digitize the paper supply chain in weed distribution in California. So currently you need like a piece of paper to go along with every line item in your order, or not line item, line item, every order that gets packed and shipped out. There's like pieces of paper, such as like certificates of uh, authenticity, mm -hmm. some compliance documentation, and a bunch of that stuff that gets printed out and put into every order crate that gets shipped out. And you can imagine that creates a ton, like literally metric tons of paper waste a year. And so when you think about the environmental damage that this is doing, it's uh, pretty significant because we are one of the most inefficient industries by environmental harm. And one of the things that we think can really make a difference is digitizing the supply chain and making these documents all available online. And so what's currently a roadblock to that is all these documents actually are online. It's just the legislation that hasn't been updated to say that documentation can be produced on request digitally as well as in print. And so currently there's some kind of mis unclarity, sorry, or in clarity, unclarity, Am ambiguity, we'll go with that word, mm -hmm. there's ambiguity in the legislation as to what the language actually means there. Can retailers have their compliance documentation on site in a digital form? Mm -hmm. Or does it have to be in print so that way if someone comes and asks for a hard copy that they need to produce it and give it to them? Mm -hmm. um, and like that's something we've been working on going back and forth with the regulatory authority to resolve and see if we can get modernized for our current supply chain. And that's something that's uniquely in the intersection of policy and technology that I think 
makes it uh, a particularly compelling role for me and part of the reason why I joined the company. Mm -hmm. and, and so you think about your, I guess your overall current title, obviously titles don't matter a great deal at startups, but your title right now is project manager or pro product manager, right? Yeah, it's a product management intern. And then I think, yeah, that is my formal role, but I was matched by Soma Capital through their startup shadowing fellowship, which uh, didn't actually end up happening, but we were still lucky enough to be placed in one of their portfolio companies or, or matched with them. Met the uh, head of product back in August. We had a good conversation and then they offered me a job. So it was, it was a really fortuitous thing, I think. Talk to me about the importance of building these relationships. You're 20 years old, right? You're in college and you're getting the opportunity to network and interface with people who are literally changing the world when it comes to something that obviously sits at the nexus of technology policy and business. And so, right, one of the things that I'm interested in talking to you about is that regardless of what the future of Nevis is and what even your personal future is, you've built this relationship. And, I, and I'm just wondering how you think about not necessarily leveraging that relationship, but how you think of making the most of your opportunity five, 10 years from now, if that makes sense. You mean this opportunity, like particularly working at Nevis or? I, I, that's a good clarifying question. I'm, I'm wondering more generally how you think about building relationships mm -hmm. um, with people that you admire and with people doing interesting things to plug yourself into this network, but also to make yourself a more effective problem solver and, and to become more useful. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that you can do at a younger age to you know go the extra mile and show either your capacity to do something or your willingness to do something is, is really express your interest in something. And there's a lot of ways to do that. One is to directly get involved in it. So for example, I was looking at financial model I'd put together for what our paper expenses were on a month to month basis. And so that was my first thought that like, why are we doing this? And then I found out that it really wasn't our choice. It was the, the regulatory authority that was forcing us to print this out and, and give it to retailers and, and scare retailers into kind of holding this documentation, even if they didn't actually use it ever. And so we found that there's a way to digitize the supply chain, but it's going to involve buy-in from a lot of stakeholders. And one of the things I started doing in Nabis was asking people who I could talk to about something like this. And people are willing to introduce you if they don't know who works on it, or the, and they're also willing to ask around. And so uh, I think something that, as a new employee that I was able to leverage, was being the new person around and just asking questions. And so when you start asking why things happen or why something is a certain way, people direct you to someone for an answer. And, and when you get directed to someone for an answer, then you get to express your interest in that problem or whatever that thing is that you want to solve. And so that for me worked out really fortuitously because I found that the chief of staff was also really interested in this problem. And so I started working with her on it and then other people joined the effort. So now it's like a team thing. And, and now we're working right. on getting rid of paper in distribution. So it's been, mm -hmm. you know, one thing leads into another. And I think that by showing an interest, you put yourself really at a step ahead of most people who wait for things to happen and then ask to join them. Right. Yeah, I think... Yeah, no, that's gold. That's probably the best networking advice I've ever heard. And it really gets back to something I've heard from a lot of other people, which is just create your own luck in that yeah. another 
friend of mine, Wade Fletcher, he he had a previous internship, which was a software internship. But at the end, his manager pulled him aside and asked him, he said, so Wade, what do you want to do after this? And he goes, I, I want to get into VC. So I guess I'll do investment banking for a little while or, or, or maybe try to start a startup. And his manager was like, no, if you want to get into VC, just go ahead and get into VC. Yeah. And now he started this scout network for VCs in college, which is one of the best examples I can think of that. And certainly that's something that you've practiced as well, because by doing that, not only are you involving yourself in a problem that you're interested in and eager to solve, but you're also getting FaceTime with and, and, and introducing yourself to all these different shareholders. I'm sure that the extent of your interaction with the chief of staff and with other members on the Navis team has increased because of the actions you took. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think picking the right people to work with, I would say. So when you're looking at a startup, it, it shouldn't be a one-way vetting process. It should never be, is the company just vetting you? It's always a two-way vetting process. The company's vetting you and you're vetting the company, trying to figure out, are they solving a real problem? Do these people care about it? Are they in it for the right reasons? Are these people I want to work with? I think like one way to think about it is like the airport test that they use notoriously in consulting and like investment banking. Is this someone I could be stuck in an airport for three hours with or all day with whatever? And, and so when you think about the people that you work with, you want the answer to be yes because you are going to spend a lot of face time with them. And so one thing that was really clear to me when I was interviewing at Mavis, even when I was talking to other companies, was that these were people that really cared. And I think what really showed, stood out to me during that process was I talked to the head of product one day, like one time, and that same night he sent me an offer letter to join the company. Mm -hmm. I talked to other companies who had made me get on the phone for three interviews, presentation, present to this board, and then send me an offer letter. And that was like, fine, you have your vetting process, but here's a guy who wanted me and who clearly showed me that he was excited for me to join the team. And I think that by them doing that and taking that extra step to send me a really nice email or whatever and get back to me that same day was a way of taking an interest. And so you feel good when you're taking an interest in, and so do companies. And I think that people tend to allow a company to vet them without ever vetting the company. And yeah. so when I knew that like these were people that I wanted to work with after I met my boss to be, I signed my offer letter because I like the people there. And so that was like the number one thing for me is, do you enjoy the people you work with? Because at right. first for me, it was a prioritization of, do you enjoy the problem you're working on? And that is what got me into policy. It was like solving the hard problems. Mm -hmm. And coming into technology, it was like, I still want to solve hard problems. Now it's really important that you, you enjoy working with the people that you do in order to solve those problems or be involved in solving those problems. Because yeah, otherwise... Yeah. You can work with anyone you want to, but if nobody at the company is willing to go to bat for you or vouch for you, it'll be really tough for you to, one, get access to things that you want to do, and two, for you to grow in a exponential way that you wouldn't otherwise grow in at, I think, a conventional opportunity. Getting to vet those, that those like opportunities, the people's and really doing your due diligence on that process is, I think, the best advice I can give for finding a startup to join. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad I spoke to you before starting work over this over the the spring. I think the situations in which I'm most effective are just when I'm around cool people or, or people that I find interesting. 
And I think the airport test is a great heuristic for that. Also, just the way you say things is funny because you said boss to be, and I've only <laughs> ever heard that with like wife to be or something. I, I just make up terminology as I go. I'm not really sure if it's a word. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I think that advice resonates so much, especially because there's so many people at this time who want to get into tech. I'd never really perceived it that way until I talked to Sudarshan Sridharan. And then he really talked about breaking into tech. And so he said it took him five years to break into tech. And it seems like it takes you, took you less time. But, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just funny to me. You said, yeah, I had an offer letter from this person, an offer letter from that person. I was like, man, this guy, this oh, guy can work anywhere. I, I didn't mean it that way either. It was, uh, it was more along the lines of there were like two or three companies I was talking to for, the, for this fall. And the other two companies I had talked to had made me run through the ringer to get those offer letters. I hadn't like appreciated that process of doing that much of a hassle to prove what I knew. And, and so here was a guy who took me at face value and thought that I really did know a lot and had a lot to contribute. And I appreciated that and they appreciated that. So I think like when you think about vetting companies, it's more the process of finding a fit in something that you think you can do incredibly well in and you can make an impact in. And rather than joining a, the highest paying company or the best title, because I think that's the wrong signal to look for. There's plenty of startups that can pay you $20 an hour as an intern. There's not a lot of breakout companies that will pay you $20 an hour to do great work. You really want to think about, do I care about, and so sorry, I, I do say that with like privilege, being someone that doesn't have to look for the highest paid offer to create stability for my family or for whatever environment I'm in, that's definitely privilege. So I think when you optimize for whatever it is, like income, opportunity, growth, like you have to go in with that mindset knowing that you may not be able to hit on all three, but you have to pick the two that you do want to hit or whatever it is. And so that's really something I think I thought about a lot before joining whatever company I did. We've obviously talked about building personal moats. And so, right, you're going into this opportunity thinking about how can I figure out what I like to do? How can I be in a position where I can grow, but also where I can contribute? And, and so you've, you've involved yourselves with a lot of things, obviously at Princeton, but also now at Navis to facilitate that growth, but also to put you in a position to make decisions that enable you to make an impact. I'm just interested in, not that everyone has this sort of one narrative arc of this is where my life is going, but I'm just wondering, how do you view the other things that you also do outside of Nabus? How do you view them as contributing to that same core thesis of, I want to focus on problems that um, involve technology policy and business where I can problem solve? Sorry, my dog was barking. I was going to say, I think... So what am I involved with? At school, I was involved with the academics committee, which is pretty much like a committee that helps set some sort of steering policy for academics at Princeton. And then I was involved with commission, or sorry, not commission, the committee on undergraduate admissions and financial aid, which is like the same kind of policy approach for undergrad admissions and financial aid. Mm -hmm. Then I was involved with something called Make Ventures Princeton, which is like a startup incubator on campus. And most recently, I joined something called Dorm Room Fund, which is a student-run venture firm funded by First Round Capital. And I think they were started in 
I don't even want to say the date because I'm definitely going to be wrong. <laughs> One of the questions I, I, I was interested in is how do you view the responsibility of you give people access to a certain amount of money, right? It's not explicitly you, as we've talked about, it's you in collection with your whole Philadelphia team, but you give people access to capital. So how do you view that responsibility as being a custodian of what ideas can succeed in the ecosystem that you're a part of? Ava's growling like crazy. I'm sorry. <laughs> she see a squirrel or something? Yeah, I think so. She's just like at the window making this low growl. <laughs> Gosh, Ava, be quiet. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I think there is a responsibility to not to fund every idea, but to listen to every idea, I think. And it is a meritocracy in the sense that like the best ideas are supposed to win. And so our job is how can we become better at evaluating these ideas and picking the right ones to help win. Mm -hmm. And we don't really see it as our responsibility to, or at least I don't want to speak for dormant fund, but I don't see it as my responsibility to fund every entrepreneur that walks in the door, but I do take it as my responsibility to at least thoughtfully think about what is the business, what can they reasonably achieve, and are these the people to do it? So those are like the the framework I use to think about businesses, or at least the ones that we see in Dormant Fund. And so when you think about what is a venture-backable business, it, it falls into a narrow definition. And like broadly, a venture-backable business is something that can scale without the, I think, typical aspects of what a scale for a Fortune 500 looks like. So for example, if you're a software company, you can scale from one to 50 states if you build out the solution for one state. And what does your market then look like if you scale to 50 states? And if it's not something that's venture-backable, like e.g. the total market is over a billion, then it's likely a pretty slim chance that it's a venture-backable business. Mm -hmm. So I think one of, it, one of the criteria is what is the market that you're aiming to tackle and what service within that market are you uh, providing or what pain point are you solving? Mm -hmm. And then assuming you do well, what does scaling your business look like? And if scaling your business still doesn't get you to a significant threshold, whatever we want to mark that threshold, then it's likely not going to fall into that definition. And when you think about, is this a venture backable business that becomes like the preliminary criteria for any idea? And so once you identify that you are a venture, venture backable business, you think about, is this idea, something that someone else has tried to solve. Why hasn't it worked? Why hasn't anyone tried it? And if you're trying it now, like, why would you do it now as compared to any other time? Like what tailwinds particularly are working in your direction or something like that? And I think something that a lot of people don't really think about is why should you start your company now as compared to any other time? So a lot of people think, oh, I have this idea. I'm going to go build this company. And I think uh, more people, and I've gotten some experience doing this, but obviously I don't have anywhere near enough, uh, is doing the due diligence on those ideas, is talking to people that would be potential customers of those pain points and saying, what do those pain points look like? What would you pay for this service? And what would that service look like? Because it really is, it's not that simple, but it, it really is where it all begins is like talking to the customer. And so for people who haven't talked to the customer and they call this like Steve Jobs, directors of product, like people who think they know everything. And so you don't, right? You don't know what this person needs. You don't know what pain points you're trying to solve within that business. And I think when you find people that do know what pain points need to be solved, and not only that they know what needs to be solved, but how to go about solving them, that becomes a really powerful story for you know funding someone's idea or plan. Because an idea should never really just be an idea. 
it should be a plan on how you bring it to fruition, um, especially when you're looking for funding. And so when, when you think about like dorm room funds role within that, it's really about evaluating ideas and helping people reshape or refine their ideas and helping them become, you know, the best versions of whatever thing they're trying to build. I think we are really lucky in that we see a lot of great student founders. And I think part of our obligation is just to hear out these student founders and also serve as a place for, you know, them to come to ask questions for them to ask for help. And, and so we, we see ourselves not as a uh, return on cash-based fund primarily, but mostly we see ourselves as a community driving student entrepreneurship. And I think that funding gap is actually what the fund was launched to solve, that kind of unique demographic of college students looking for access to capital where most venture firms weren't looking and for us to be in at the ground level, essentially helping people. And this is, I think, what first round also gets at, but being there for the entrepreneur from the jump. And so that's what it really is about and how we can best support them, I think. It's an incredibly difficult task in front of you, right? Because you may not have domain expertise about every startup that comes to you. So to some extent, you, you have to ask these founders. And I guess the question that you said you're asking yourself is how well do they know their users? And to some extent, you have to ask them to explain their users essentially to you, right? And that seems to be a great way to also get some measure of how well they understand who they're building the product for. I think one way to think about this, and this is something that Michael uh, Seibel said in like his information session at Princeton, and I'm sure he might've said this to you guys too, but investors are uh, a mile wide and a foot deep, meaning that we have very little deep knowledge on any expertise area, but wide knowledge and like shallow knowledge of a lot of different things, which means that for one, it, it's not impossible to outsmart an investor, especially if you know what to say. And two, I think the more important part of that is being able to call bullshit, right? Like you said, obviously we do some of our own due diligence and we're lucky in that we have a team of 15 partners, more or less so we have someone to cover most things. And so we'll be hard pressed to find something that nobody has expertise in. And so I think that is one of our strength strengths in that it's a really diverse group of people. So a lot of different interests and a lot of people know a lot about a lot of different things. And so that makes a unique environment where, you know, a point partner or, or someone that, you know, knows more about an industry. Like, for example, we took a healthcare pitch. I can't really talk too specifically about the company, but we took a healthcare pitch and we had a, one of our partners is a in the healthcare practice at the Wharton School. And, and so he was able to leverage his contacts in these different areas of healthcare and talk to people and check out this pain point in particular with them. And so when you have a person who has a resource network in a certain industry, it suddenly becomes really helpful to have people who are connected in these different practices. So that way, your ability to call bullshit on things becomes much higher. And so really what you're looking for is, can this person explain to me the problem in a way that goes deeper than what I even understand? And can they explain it to me in a way that I think makes sense? Does their approach have a unique insight is, is one way to think about it. And so when you find founders that do have that kind of unique insight or deep expertise, that's where you really want to, or, or we think you really want to support them. We think of it as like founder problem fit. 
So does this founder have some kind of unfair advantage that's going to make them uniquely positioned to solve this problem? And usually that happens if you're trying to solve a problem for yourself. If you have a certain issue or pain point that you then go out and build a solution to. And those tend to be people that have a really great understanding of how to do things. I think if you take on an idea without having any practical background in it, it becomes a much tougher sell to someone else to explain why you are the person to take on this problem and why this is truly a problem. And so what they, what venture investing often looks for is like deep knowledge on certain subjects that prove that you are better equipped than the next person. So the way to think about it is if there's one team pitching this idea here to me in Philadelphia, what's to say that another team pitching this idea to someone in San Francisco isn't going to do it better? And so like right. when you think about that, it becomes a framework for what unfair advantage does this team have? And so that's something that I think we think about. Yeah, I obviously going to wrap up now. The last question I, I tend to ask people is just what excites you the most about the future? But before that, I've, I've been dealing with cancellations and just people moving around when I can you know, do the podcast with them. And so I just really want to thank you for sticking to the same time. Obviously, you didn't have much of a choice since you're my cousin, but I appreciate it. Awesome. Awesome to just learn more about my own family. But yeah, go ahead. What excites you the most about the future? There's a couple of things that I, I think are really interesting directionally in the world at large. One is, I think, the trend towards expert-oriented learning, which is like to say people are focusing less on learning from institutions and more on learning from people which I think is really healthy for you know, society and for people in general, because I don't think it's not the Ivy League that solves the world's problems. It's people that solve the world's problems. And being able to take great traits from people, regardless of, mm-hmm. uh, of prestige or accolade or any other kind of those signaling filters that, that exist because of like gatekeepers like institutions and universities. I think the more that we can get away from those, the better. And I think we are moving in that direction with things like workforce development, things like Lambda School and similar things. And and I think that's really exciting. And then another thing I think is really exciting is directionally the movement to one, give people more social liberties. And so one of the examples of that is just obviously like cannabis deregulation and decriminalization which is a signal of winding down of the war on drugs, for example. Like that's something that was clearly a blunder in history. And so it's, it's exciting to see the country move in, in the right direction on that and to see that become something that would actually create equity in society as, as a ways to help people that were actually previously disenfranchised because of their history with drug use or drug sales or whatever it was. So I think uh, that's really cool. And then the last thing that I'm really interested about is, uh, so I study China and, and policy at Princeton, obviously. So I think one of the things that I'm really interested about is uh, internet and the information technology exchange between the United States and, and America, or not United States, America, United States and uh, China. And when you think about just like the internet between the United States and China, there's obviously the great firewall, right, within China, which prevents Chinese citizens from seeing a lot of things that Americans do and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you think about the future of the internet and where that's headed, you think, okay, I doubt that's actually going to stand up forever. If you think about authoritarianism, there's been like this 
bell-shaped curve of like over the years where in the 1960s and 70s, you saw a lot of authoritarianism and, and totalitarian governments. And that kind of went back down to the 90s and 2000s. And so when you think about China's future as a totalitarian government or CCP as a communist party, it's hard to sustain that. And it's even more critical that they do, but it's hard to sustain it. And I, I think personally, something's going to have to exist to regulate the exchange of either like high tech innovation in the internet technology sector as a whole between the United States and China over the long run. And I also think that there's going to be inevitable, I think, pressures to become more transparent within China, which I think creates a really exciting international opportunity for internet exchange between countries that had splintered internets. And, and so that's not something I think that's going to happen in the very near future. I think it's something that directionally is actually even more unlikely right now because of like the tensions caused between Trump and, and China and whatnot. But I think over the next 20 years, we're going to see regulatory authorities coming out to oversee that exchange of information tech. And we're going to see a lot more private enterprises looking to govern and regulate that exchange. And so that's something I'm excited about. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't even know what it means really, but it is something I think that will eventually have to happen. Yeah. It's this whole delocalization and decentralization of authority, wealth, and as you mentioned, this idea of a post-permission world in which there are really no gatekeepers anymore. And and, and so for me, it, it feeds back into it's it's exciting to watch trends in internet mechanics and, and how those influence certainly China, but also just how decentralized the internet can become and how much more control we can take over our own data. But also this whole idea of no more gatekeepers, right? Who thought a group of 20, 21, 22 year olds could, you know, be, you know, funding startups in college. That's a crazy idea, but yeah. it's, it's the world we live in. So yeah, super, you know, super excited to talk to you. Thanks so much for talking to me. And obviously you didn't have a choice since you're again, my cousin, but uh, awesome to talk to you. And, and yeah, I can't wait to share this episode with everyone yeah, else. Beyond, Thanks for having me. I know uh, there's probably a lot more interesting people you could talk to. So I uh, appreciate you. No, I trust me. You're the most interesting. This is the best podcast episode I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. You should probably raise the bar then. Okay, bye, Justin. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Please like, subscribe, tweet, text, and share so that more people can find the podcast. Take care, and we'll see you next time.